slash illusionist, uh, set out with the goal of, of proving the, the, the works of Jesus to, to be false. And so what he did was he, he began to investigate the miracles and the works of Jesus and to, and to try to uh, see if he could replicate those miracles to disprove the, the deity and the work of Christ. Uh, very, very interesting, uh, compelling story. What happened was, though, he wound up uh, coming to believe that, that Jesus was who he said he was. And uh, he's going to be here in town at SU on October 25th and 26th. And this is what he does. He puts on a, an, a show filled with illusions and then will present the gospel at the end of that. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of a, a sideways or a creative approach to sharing the gospel with someone. What, what my friend Dave, who's, who's involved in organizing this, has asked is that if you want to bring someone to that so they can hear the gospel in its fullness um, or hear it presented in a way that's not just straight out sharing, more of a creative way, then get yourself a ticket for this. It's $6 for children, $10 for adults. Um, they are asking that you not just go to, to see a magic show, but that you use it as an evangelistic outreach. So um, there are a, a number of these hanging up as a reminder for you, please take them and, and avail yourself of this opportunity to, uh, to share the gospel. Um, we're going we're gonna to read from Jonah chapter 3 and 4, and then we're going to pray and turn to God's word. So let's read together. The scripture says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade to his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we come to you now and we want to be sure, Lord, that as we come to your word, that we do so with humility. Father, we know that we lack the purity often to see your word for what it is and we modify it and we change it. Lord, we know that many have portrayed this book about, as a book about men being swallowed by fish and they have missed the point entirely. But Father, we pray that it would not be so with us because we want to know what you have to say to us, Father. We come to you asking you to speak to us. And Father, we pray that if there is a sin that we're cherishing in our hearts, we pray that you would break it. Father, we pray that if there's an attitude that resists your loving, compassionate correction, we pray that you would take that from us. Father, we pray that if there is a passion for you and for your heart. We pray that you would nurture it. And Father, we pray that in all things that we would grow and grow in your compassion and in your values, that our heart might beat like yours to your glory. Father, this we pray because we know that it's your will for us. And so we pray this in the precious name of of Jesus. Amen. Well, among Jesus' parables, there is probably one, I think, which is most loved of all. Um, of course, this may just be my opinion, but I believe that of, of all of the parables that Jesus told, that the parable of the prodigal son is quite possibly uh, one of people's favorites. This story, Jesus tells to a group of Pharisees who are judging Jesus for dining and eating with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collector is a symbol, a synonym for uh, a, a disreputable person. Tax collectors were, were not well thought of in that culture. And Jesus 
is the kind of guy, when he comes and ministers, he spends his time eating and drinking with those who are the least of the least. And those who are greatest among the civilization that he's ministering in, uh, they look down on these people. And so when Jesus sees them judging him and judging the tax collectors and the sinners, he tells this tale about a young man who asks his father to split the inheritance, which is a great insult. The inheritance gets split when the father dies, not before. Split the inheritance with me that I might take what's mine and go and live the way I choose. And so he takes the money. And he goes and lives, drinking, mixing it up with wild men and loose women. And he spends all the money. He winds up starving. And so... He's sitting there, gets a job feeding pigs, and he's desperate. And he remembers his father's house, and he thinks, the lowest slave in my father's house have got it, has got it better than I do. And so he says, I'm going I'm to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be, one of your, one, to, to be your son. Let me be like one of your hired servants. And, and so he travels back home, and as he gets to his house, his father sees him and, and greets him from afar and runs to meet him and kisses him on the neck and puts clean clothes on him and gives him a ring and sandals and makes him as a son in the house again. But the older brother, who's been home and has been a good boy and who knows his father's ways and who's lived right, is angry with the father and with the younger son and says, how can you take him back? He insulted you. He squandered your money. And now he's back and you've never rewarded me. You've never given me anything. And the father rebukes the son by saying, we had to rejoice when your brother came back. Because he was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost and he's been found. The older brother is full of wrath. Because he knows what the father should do. And he judges the father for the grace that he's shown to the son. That's the point of one of the favorite parables of Jesus. And I would argue that that is the point of the book of Jonah, which I think you could call the parable of the prodigal prophet. We're going to dig into the last two chapters and finish up our time in Jonah today. Um, I, I, I think this is going to be a, a, perhaps a, a blurry whirlwind of, of, of facts and details, but, but I, think, I think that the, the main point will shine through as we survey these last two chapters and, and build to a conclusion. We see in the first part of Jonah chapter 3, we see a second chance for Jonah. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, exactly like it came the first time. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it the message that I tell you. The word of God comes to Jonah again, and he goes and proclaims. The number one thing that we ought to do when we repent is obey. 
The first thing that we ought to do when we repent, the number one fruit of repentance, I believe, is obedience. When we come to God, when we acknowledge that we have sinned against Him, that we have lived in a way that displeases Him, and we've failed to do the things that God has called us to do, to forsake sin, to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are truly repentant and we're turning from our sin, then what we ought to do is turn from sin and turn to obedience. I'm reminded of a story about a young man who was sitting in his log cabin with his father, and his father said, Son, put another log on the fire. And the son says, who do you think you are always telling me what to do and bossing me around and you never say please and you never say thank you and you just oppress me, you want to control my life, you're constantly making me do stuff for you. And then in the middle of his rant, he is, he is struck with guilt and he begins to repent and he thinks about it and then he comes back to his dad and he says, Dad, you are so good to me. You're so good to me. You're so kind. What can, Father, I am I'm wretched. I, I, I am, I'm sinful. I have gone astray in so many ways and offended you. Perhaps I could get you a cup of tea. Perhaps I could make you a meal. Perhaps I could go and get you a blanket, you know, to, to comfort you and, and to warm you. Perhaps, perhaps I could build you a new house a warmer house, in a, in a warmer climate. What is it that I can do to please you, Father? And the Father says, put another log on the fire, Son. We, so often, when we come and we engage our repentance, we think that we have got to do all kinds of things to earn the affection and the love of God. But the truth is, if God has purified us from our sins, all He wants from us is to go and to live in the way that He's told us. Jonah suffers a mighty trial. He was sent to preach to Nineveh, and he runs the opposite direction. He almost kills the crew of the boat that he's on with his disobedience. They throw him overboard. He's eaten by a fish and probably almost dies in the belly of that whale and then is spat up on the shore And when the word of God comes to him again, it is not, you are forgiven, all is made well, please go do something else. It is, go and do what I said. Let me urge you this morning, if you have been running from God, if you have been disobedient and you are returning to him, whether it's your first time in church for a long time, or whether or not you've been sitting next to someone who thinks you should be here every week, whether you're, you're just in this place and God's been dealing with you, let me encourage you to go back to where your fellowship with Him was broken and to obey. Because that's His word to Jonah. Jonah arose and arises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And he goes into the city and he begins to He begins, boy, I'm having a hard time getting my verbs in the right tense this morning. He proclaims to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I believe this is the most effective sermon in the entire Bible. There is no sermon more powerful than this one right here because of the the great repentance which will break out from it. Yet 
40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He puts the fear of God into them. I think also his appearance has something to do with it. Think, he's been in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. I think his hair is probably a little burnt off. You know, I think his skin is probably a little burnt off. And so he's out there in this city. He is blinding white. He probably smells disgusting. And he's proclaiming to them. And they are afraid. And so we see a great repentance breaks out in verses 5 through 9. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. And they not only believe God, but they turn from wickedness to obedience. And they begin to do the things that they believe will please God or which demonstrate genuine repentance. It says that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This means that dad put on sackcloth and they put sackcloth on the baby, right? This means that the king puts on sackcloth, that the rulers, the officials put on sackcloth. And the servants, the street sweepers, put on rough, burlapy sackcloth. The command is to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. The king hears from it. He gets up from his throne. He removes his royal robe, probably takes off his crown, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits in dirty ashes. And notice this. He goes so far as to make a proclamation. I love this. This is, this is just one of these hidden gems that you can read over so many times. He says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything, nor let them feed or drink water. They take away the animals' feed. They make the animals fast. They take away their water bowls. I was thinking of doing that and bringing my dog's water bowl here this morning. Um, and, and, and demonstrating what it might like to, to, uh, to, to fast, but he's not done anything wrong, and, uh, and so I did not want to punish him. But they, they prevent the, the chickens and the cows and the kids and the adults from eating and drinking to demonstrate to God that obedience and sorrow is more important to them than feeding their bodies. That's a demonstration of how sinful they believed that they were. Look at what he says in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let's all pray, let's all repent, but you make sure that we do everything we possibly can to fend off the curse of God on us. I've been thinking, I mean, you guys know what burlap is like, right? This is something that's like burlap. I couldn't find any actual burlap. But I thought, what would it be like to try to get this on my dog, you know? So I cut four leg holes and a little tail hole for him. He didn't like it. He was chewing on it. I had this on him last night. But imagine what it would be like, not comically, you know? I mean, I'm thinking, okay, how would I do this? maybe some pins, maybe a little strap. What would it be like if I was so afraid that God was going to destroy this city, that I was motivated to take away my dog's food bowl and to listen to my children ask for food over and over again while they sit in sackcloth? And I say, God, we are so sinful. We need your deliverance. These people were serious. This is a serious repentance. They are 
They are moved. They are scared. They are threatened by the anger of God. Notice the sadness in verse 9. The king in his proclamation says, Who knows? Who knows? God may. He might. If we repent in the way that we're called to, God might relent and turn from his fierce anger, and we might not perish. I see two things here. One, I see that there is a a true sadness and compassion that we have, we ought to have, towards those who don't know the gospel. As believers, it, it, it can be very easy for us to think, well, I, you know, if I, if I sin, if I mess up, I'll just confess and God will forgive me. But there are many people who live with a tremendous burden They have no way of knowing if anything they've ever done wrong will be forgiven. And so they light candles and give money and support charities and do good things, thinking that perhaps in heaven there is some grand scale and all the evil that they've done is on one side of the scale and that the good that they've done is somehow out. Perhaps maybe it will outweigh if they give enough or confess enough or, or do enough good things. And they live with the idea of perhaps. I mean, take, take this just a step further. I was on the phone with a, with a gentleman, nobody who attends this church, and I was just talking to him about some things that are, that are going on in his life. And um, he said, you know what? I'm just trying to be a good Baptist. Just trying. He said, I, I want to make it to heaven too. And I'm hoping that the Lord will look at me and look at the way that I've lived my life and say, yes, you can go to heaven. And I thought, that is so sad. There are so many people who are saying, if we repent, will God relent? If I am good enough, will he show me grace? As Christians, that ought to move us to sadness. And if you're here this morning and you think, I'm here in church so that God will like me. God will bless me. I do good things so that God will love me. I have such good news for you. If you try to be good, you will be persistently, constantly insecure. But there is better news than trying to be good. We learn in the New Testament that the gospel is that we are saved by God's grace to us through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, for by grace you have been saved And if you do not believe in the gospel, I would say this. You can be saved through faith. Paul goes on to say, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. God accomplishes 
the work of salvation in Christ on the cross on our behalf so that no amount of bad works can separate us from God and because no amount of good works can ever cancel out the evil that we've done in our lives. God is holy and just and he, he demands that every sin be punished. And the good news of the gospel is that God pours all these sins upon Christ and then crushes him on our behalf. So that if we believe in that work by faith, we can be purified. This is what the gospel means. If you believe, if you trust in the work of Christ, you are a righteous person. You do not need to say, perhaps, or who knows. You will make it. And when I was on the phone with this gentleman, I said, I am so excited. When he finished saying, I'm just trying to be a good Baptist, I said, I am so excited for you. And he said, why? I said, I've got the greatest news for you. You don't have to be a good Baptist. You don't have to try to be a good Christian. You don't have to wonder if maybe God will forgive you. Because he will. If you trust in Christ, if you say, I am wretched, I am the worst, and symbolically inside you say, I'm going to put sackcloth on my inner beast and repent. And Father, I am sorry that I've sinned against you. Make me as a hired servant, God will say, I'll make you a son in my house. Scripture says that we receive adoption as sons. God purifies us with the righteousness of Christ and he looks at us as if we have never sinned. He puts a royal robe on us and welcomes us into his home. It is as easy as repenting, which is acknowledging that your sins are sinful, and believing that only through Christ you can be saved. May it never be that someone who comes to this church more than once, they come the first time and they don't know this, that's fine. But if, what a tragedy if you've been here for so long and you're still trying to be good. Let me urge you to repent of trying to be good. Live holy, but don't do it to earn the affection of God. Do it because you are grateful for what he's done for you in Christ. Well, let's look at the third section here, the relenting and gracious character of God. Notice in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. I can't just, I can't help but think that God in heaven, even though he knew this would happen before, I think when they start putting the burlap on the chickens, I think he smiles. Those are my kind of people, you know? Look at them. You tell them to repent, and they do. And it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. The Hebrew word there is the evil that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The people repented of their evil, and God repented of the disaster he was going to bring upon them. You know, God's character and his promises are on the line. When we try his promises. When God says, if you repent, I will forgive, he will. 
because his good name is on the line. If there is a single human being who spends eternity separated from his goodness, experiencing his wrath for all eternity, if there's a single human being who says, I shouldn't be here because I trusted you and you promised me God would cease to be glorious. And he will never do that. Which means that if you take him up on his offer of forgiveness, then he will forgive you. If he promises to fill you with his spirit and place a clean heart in you, he'll do it. And you can believe it because his character is on the line. He swears by himself, the book of Hebrews says, and there is nothing higher than himself. And he will not diminish his glorious character. They repent and God relents. Which brings us to the last point and the biggest point and me with a few moments to bring it to you. We see here the prodigal prophet. And I pray, as God has shown this to me, I pray that we would see our own tendency to have prodigal hearts. Let's look first at Jonah's God. Verse 1 says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prays to the Lord, and he says, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I ran away. Because he had, he had knowledge. He says, For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We find this in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 36, verses 6 and 7. This is a, a famous phrase, a good, solid bit of Jewish theology that comes from way back in the day of Moses. Jonah he knows God's character from reading God's word. He is a brilliant theologian. His prayer in chapter 2, full of references to Psalms. His expression of who he is when he says, I am a Hebrew, I worship the God who created the heavens and the earth in chapter 1, is a, another crystallized phrase which comes out of the Old Testament. Jonah knows much. He is a brilliant theologian. But his heart for God is low. Look at his abominable character. One, he's angry with God because God has shown compassion on a people who've received his message and they've repented. And Jonah is now angry. He's out there, bitter that they're repenting. Some people will ask me, Keith, is it okay to be angry with God. I say, you look, go ahead and pray an angry prayer. God, I'm angry with you, but by the end of your prayer, make sure you've repented. Because there's never any moment. We may feel anger, we may feel frustration with God, but God is a merciful, gracious, righteous God who does all things well. He never sins. He shows kindness to us that we might repent and seek His mercy. So make sure that if, even if you're frustrated with what's going on in your life, you can start your prayer angry. But do like they do in the Psalms. By the time that the Psalm is over, they've repented of that. Jonah's angry with God. Jonah also preaches an eight-word sermon, which I think is just sad. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't even go to the king, it seems. The king is left saying, who knows? Who knows? If we repent, perhaps God will relent. Jonah knows. 
Jonah knows that if they repent, God will relent, and he doesn't tell them. Instead, he just heaps judgment on them. The Ninevites are unsure of God's character toward them if they repent, and they take a gamble. They roll the dice because they have no knowledge. But Jonah knows, and he does not inform them. Now, it's a valid criticism, and I think I, think I love the heart of the elders and leaders and members here. It is a valid criticism that we believe that there are many people out in our culture right now who have little knowledge of the things of God, but much heart for him. They love God, but they are largely ignorant of his word. I think it's a valid criticism. That's why we try to give away good books, preach long sermons, teach you God's Word. You know, all of our groups and meetings have got Bible study involved in it because we want people to know more about God. They know of His ways and they can follow Him accurately. But even though it may be a valid criticism to take aim at those with little knowledge and much heart, you can hardly blame many people because they've been, many people have been poorly taught. But I believe it's inexcusable and abominable if having much knowledge, knowing your Bible back and forward, you may know where all the books are, you may know the, the psalm that's in the middle of the Bible, you may know what the longest verse in the Bible is, you may know what the longest chapter is all kinds of trivia, and yet have a little heart. I think that is inexcusable, to know much about God and yet be so unlike Him in character. And so we see this parable enacted here. Jonah confesses his anger when he sees the repentance, but he just verbalizes it. He's not confessing the wrongness of it. I think he believes he's going to run out the clock here. That's a sports analogy, by the way. And see what <laughs> happens, whether God judges them or not. And he's sitting there in the heat of the sun. Remember the whiteness and the thinness of his skin baking in the sun. He builds himself some pathetic little booth out of his, maybe out of some, some cloth he's got or something. He sets up a tiny little shelter to live in. And he's angry and hot. And God causes a plant to grow up, and to grow over him. And Jonah wakes up the next day. Is this day three or four? He's waiting, running out his anger for 39 days, waiting for judgment to come. And he's sitting under this plant, and he's like, oh, the breeze and the shade. God is so good to me. He is so kind. Oh, I wonder what he's going to do. Is he going to destroy those rotten people? What's he going to do? And it says that God appoints a worm to come and to eat the gourd. And it withers and dies. And Jonah is left in the blistering heat, and he is angry again. And God comes and says, are you right to be angry about the death of this plant? And he says, I am angry, angry enough to die. As Christians, we need to learn a lesson from Jonah's suffering here. Gladness that's centered only in our circumstances is fake. True gladness rests in having a character that loves the heart of God. Jonah should be sitting out there, even if he's baking in the heat. Should he be baking in the heat? 
Or should he be in the city ministering to them, calling them to repent and to reform and to trust in the heart and the character of God? Instead, he's sitting out there baking, fuming, waiting for God to heap destruction on them. And God takes away his comfort and he is ready to die. Which should challenge us to say, when we share, when we preach, when we teach, when we share the gospel with others, do we long to see people transformed and changed? That person who hurt you in a horrific way, do you long to see them restored? Or do you long to see them in hell? When someone is wicked in our culture, or perhaps in in your local family life, do you long to see them judged by God or to see them renewed when you see someone that you can't stand on television and they happen to be a Republican or a Democrat do you long to see them disgraced or do you long to see them live a noble life in which the will of God is displayed when someone goes to another church do you fear for your own church and long for the failure of that church or of that person that they would return in repentance, perhaps, or with their tail between their legs, admitting they're wrong and ever leaving? Or do you long to see that body established and grow and that believer nurtured and connected to the body of Christ? Do you have a heart of compassion and grace for others? Is your grace made plain? Is it plainly, clearly displayed in your attitude towards others in the body and in the wider world? Husband, can people see your love for the heart of God in the way that you treat your spouse? Wife, can people see that in the way that you treat your husband? Father and mother, do people see your heart for the heart of God in your love for your children? Good theology never replaces the need for a good heart. The goal of God's work in all things, I'm going to say three things and we're going to pray. God's goal is to expose the heart and to change the heart. God says at the end here in verse 10, you pity the plant. You're so upset over the death of this plant for which you did not labor. You didn't plant it. You didn't make it grow. You didn't do anything. Came into being in a night, perished in a night. And you're so worried and worked up about it. Should I not pity those 120,000 people who don't know right from wrong? Shouldn't I pity them? He exposes Jonah's heart. Second, know that God knows the heart. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, all the churches will know when he brings judgment and reward to the church that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Know that God works providentially in your circumstances. He brings pain and comfort into your life. Why? To challenge your heart and mind so that you would see 
the ways in which your heart and mind are not like his, and he longs to draw you into congruity with him. But finally, if you're wondering, how then do I change? The answer is by faith in the work of God in your life, because God can and will renew the heart. I'm going to close reading this scripture. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 says that God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So how is your heart this morning? Are you saying no to God? If so, let me urge you to repent. If your heart is out of tune, although you're trying to live right, pray for grace and nourish yourself on God's word that you might fight back against the desires of your heart which wage war with your new spiritual man. And then third, if you're longing to live in the mercy of God, let me urge you to either come and talk to me after the service or to seek out someone and ask them to explain to you how you can experience a relationship with God. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word toward us, Lord. And I pray that in our future readings of the book of Jonah, I pray that in our future dealings with those out amongst the world and with those within this body, Father, I pray that we would have a heart, a heart like yours. Father, may we never be accused of those who are so high on theology. that we are puffed up and proud and have no heart for people because your heart is for people. Father, we pray that above all others, we would be forgiving. We pray that above all others, we would be humble. Father, I pray that we would never be those who say, if that person repents, I will repent. Or if that person apologizes, I will forgive. But we will be the ones who engage your heart on a daily basis. Because the truth is, Father, that everybody in this book either carried out the will of God or wound up reconciled to him except your prophet. Father, I pray, like the author of Hebrews says, that there would not be an unbelieving heart among us. And Father, you know how far short we all fall. And so we pray, beginning with us, you would renew our hearts and cause them to beat in sequence with yours. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who does not know you, who does not trust in your grace and in the grace of the gospel, Father, I pray that they would put their trust in you, not in their works, not in their goodness, but in the grace and mercy and peace that you display in the cross. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand and proclaim this word, and I pray that you would make it so in our lives. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.